Welcome to We Are Unstoppable, sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. I'm your host, Les Shapiro. And I'm your co-host, Vic Lombardi. Now, each episode, we'll bring inspiring interviews with great athletes, celebrities, and the most brilliant minds in medicine on how to beat adversity to win in life. So thanks for spending time with us as we bring you one step closer to becoming your best unstoppable self. Our guest for this episode is Mark Schlereth, and I've always looked at Mark Schlereth as kind of a renaissance man. Former NFL player, won three Super Bowls, one with the Washington Football Club, two others with the Denver Broncos, host of a popular morning radio show in Denver, color analyst for Fox Sports on NFL games. He's had a recurring role on the soap opera Guiding Light. He had a recurring role on the HBO TV show Ballers. He had a role in a movie, Red Dawn, and his name is on a chili product called Mark Schlereth's Stinkin' Good Green Chili. So what's next, Mark? Political office? You're going to climb Mount Everest? What's the next goal? <laughs> you know what? The next, it's just keeping all the balls juggled in the air. Mark, we've been talking about the Washington Football Club and and the nickname Redskins here. We refer to it at least. You played for them for five, six years. They drafted you. You won a Super Bowl with the Redskins. How do you feel about what's going on with the nickname thing right now? It doesn't bother me at all. I, I mean, I, I look at... A person or a, a group of people's ethnicity probably should not be a nickname. I think it's pretty simple. I'm not real sentimental. Like, I don't have a lot of – I haven't collected a lot of autographs or a lot of people's jerseys or any of that stuff because I collect the memories. I collect, you know, the relationships. That's that's what it's all about to me. So when I think of Washington, I think my time there, I think about the men and women that made that organization great. I think about the George Allens and I think about, you know, the Charlie Taylors who was on our coaching staff when I was playing there and the Bobby Mitchells who was part of the, you know, part of the organization. I think about the Dave Butzes of the world. And I think of the Joe Jacobis, the Russ Grimms, the Jeff Bostics and, and Joe Gibbs and, and my time, Charles Mann and Art Monk and Daryl Green and all these guys that were my dear friends and really not only taught me how to play football, but really taught me how to be a man, taught me how to be a husband, taught me how to be a father. And so when I, when I think of, of that team, you know, I don't think about the nickname. It doesn't, you can call them whatever you want. What made that organization and what made that um, such a, a stellar part of the community were the men and the women that, that worked there, that, that laid it on the line on a consistent basis. I even think back to my Denver days, you know, the, the Broncos, the, that moniker or that nickname, whatever. Because when I think of the Broncos, you know, in 1997, I had had back surgery. And so I'd missed a couple of games. And we had lost a couple of games. We'd lost to Pittsburgh. We had lost to San Francisco. And I was kind of a fly on the wall at the time because, you know, I'm in rehab and doing those things. And everybody goes to meetings and I'm doing my rehab. And so I see guys coming in late. I see guys missing the first five minutes of a meeting. I see some of the things that are happening within our football team. And I see us losing at the same time. And so, you know, I call this team meeting. I get up in front of this team and, you know, I talk to them about, hey, when you show up late to something, you're basically saying my time is more valuable than your time. My family is more valuable than your family. That's bullshit. Like, that, that can't be. You, you cannot operate a team that way. And, you know, ultimately in this meeting, and I'm having this meeting in our team meeting room in Denver, and you know how Mike Shanahan is. Our dear friend Mike Shanahan has got everything videoed, so all the coaches are upstairs watching this team meeting, right? They're watching this meeting. And I was, I sat there and I said, I, I, I kid you not, I go, this is not Pat Bowen's team. 
I go, this is not Mike Shanahan's team. This is our team. He's not going to make one tackle or one block. We're the ones that go out and lay it on the line. This is our team. And that's how I feel about the, the nickname. It's not about, you know, whether you call them the Red Hawks or the Red Skins or the Red Tails or the, but you know, the Hawk, whatever you want to call them. It doesn't matter to me because it's the people that matter to me. It's the relationships that matter to me. And it's not only the relationships inside the building, it's the relationships with that community. So, you know what, you'll adopt the new nickname and, and you'll be off and running and everybody will, at the end of the day, go, hell, what took so long? I, I heard you just casually describe, oh, yeah, I had back surgery, like it's nothing. I've had two surgeries in my life, uh, Steve, uh-huh. and, and, I, and I was like, I was out for a week and I couldn't believe I got through them. You've had, um, I'm told, 29 surgeries, 20 on your knees. Uh-huh. How are you still walking and talking today? How are you, I mean, what is happening right now? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I am the spawn of poolside. Uh, okay. My father, my father, uh, uh, fondly known as poolside uh, throughout my college teammates, is an absolute freak of nature. And so uh, my dad is will be 81 here in, gosh, in less than a month and just a couple of weeks. And uh, I mean, on his 78th birthday, he benched 300 pounds. Wait, wait, wait a minute. 300 pounds on his 78th birthday? On his 78th birthday, yes. Uh, Les, can you bench 200 pounds? I can't. No. No. <laughs> oh, my One, God. I come from, you know, I come from ridiculous genes. Well, you can't bend your knee, correct? No. You can't my, bend it. My knee doesn't bend past about 80, 85 degrees. But you know what? I'm still out there doing it. I'm still squatting. I'm still lifting. I'm still doing my thing. So uh, are you going to need new knees at some point, Mark? It's, yeah, at some point, my left knee needs to be – it really needs to be replaced. But my little range of motion, I'm actually still functional, you know. And so I get to the point where I'm like, yeah, it doesn't bend very well, but I'm not, like, aching – I'm not in pain all no, – No bone on bone? No pain? Oh, it's all bone on bone. Yeah, it's all, it's all completely collapsed. If you look at my left knee, there is, there is actually no space – at all in in my left so it's it is awful but the crazy thing is if you show it to any doctor in america they'll all be like oh god how, how bad does that hurt like, ah, actually you know it, like it's not that bad it's uh i function well now i think part of the process is when you haven't known anything but pain you get used to that being the normal and so you just get you just kind of almost put up with it and, and you don't know any better. So it always hurts to a degree, but it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't stop me from living. So um, I just keep, I just keep waiting on replacing it saying, well, I can still lift. I can still do things. Um, you know, I can still walk. And I can still, you know, walk the dog and walk with my wife and do some things. So I'm just like, I don't, I'm not in any rush to, to fix it. Now, I probably will get it replaced and go, damn, I should have done this 10 years ago, you know? But um, right now, it's what I know. It's it's my life in general. Well, pain threshold is all relative, right? Your back pain and my right. back pain might be completely different pains. But I'm sure during your NFL career, you had teammates who like, ah, oh, you know, I'm, I'm hurting. Uh, give me give me an injection. Give me a Toradol. Give me a pill. Give me this. Give me that. What what's your stance on all that? I mean, because you lived it. You were behind the locker yeah. room where those artificial means to get by they can hurt you long term. They certainly can. Um, like anything can hurt you long term, you know. I mean, I, I just I look I look at that Vic as you, you pay a price, right? There's a price that you have to pay to do something that you love to do. 
Like, what sacrifice are you willing to make? How desperate are you to play? How desperate are you to live out your childhood dream? The only thing I ever wanted to be from the time I was 12 years old was an NFL football player. And, you know, that that, that creates a, a situation where you're going to have to make sacrifices. You're going to have to do things differently than other people. And, and to me, you know, there's a certain desperation that you need in every walk of life. And I was desperate to play. And so, you know, we used to have a saying when I grew up in the NFL and even in college, you can't be afraid of the needle. Like you, you just, you, you can't, if that's what you need to do to, to play, because it was your responsibility to play for the people around you, then that's what you had to do. You know, and I'm not, I'm not alone. That's not just me. That's, that's how I learned, how I grew up in the league and, and how I learned to play professional football. That was part of the process is that if you got to take a needle to play, you got to take a needle to play because you're really out there for the guys that, that, you know, you surround yourself with. So you know, I know it's changed to some degree, but um, it's just the way it's just the way I was brought up, and it's just the way I was raised in the game. Well, yeah, let let's expound on that a little bit, Mark. You you talk about being desperate to play. Twelve seasons in the NFL, twenty nine surgeries, including twenty on your knees. Yet you didn't miss a whole lot of time. You didn't miss a lot of games. You didn't miss a lot of practice. So, what gave you that desperation to play? What what puts you in that mental mindset that that you just weren't going to miss any time? I think there's several things that that were created because of that. I think one less is that that I really had this attitude of being a servant to the, to the guys that I played with. You know, everybody has mission statements, right? These companies have a mission statement. Everybody puts their their goals out there or their culture out there, and they 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 develop a mission statement, and then they look at it and they craft it and they say, "Man, this is a great mission statement," and then they water it up and throw it in the corner and. You know, I, I always looked at that and I thought, well, shouldn't you have kind of your own personal mission statement? Shouldn't you be about something? Shouldn't there be something that you can really glom onto and say, this is who and this is what I want to be about. And these are the sacrifices I'm willing to make. As a player, it is my responsibility to go out and sacrifice everything I have to the guys that I play for. And that includes the equipment guys. That includes the trainers. That includes the guy who cleans up our locker room. That includes the guys I play next to. That includes the guys on defense and every coach that coaches me. So I always believed in that. And that's always the way I operated my career. And then from that standpoint, um, I always thought about just the playing aspect of it is anybody can go out when they play, when they feel good and play well. I'm going to feel like crap, but I'm still going to go out and whip your ass. And so there was a game within a game that I was constantly playing when I was a football player. It was like, I feel like garbage, but I owe it to these guys that I play for, this organization that I play for. And I, I tell you what, the other thing I, I owe it to all those guys, and I'm going to go out here regardless of how I feel, and I'm going to go out here and dominate because that's the commitment I've made. One thing I can say, there was never a time that I've ever looked back on my career and said, boy, I wish I would have. I wish I would have studied harder. I wish I would have prepared more. I wish I would have. Nuh-uh. There was not one thing. I was never late to anything. I was never ill-prepared. I, I never missed workouts. I never, like, nothing. So when I walked away, I was like, gosh, that chapter's over. What a great run. What's next? What can I do next? Because 
that part, I, I will never look back with not one regret and go, well, I wish I would never. There is nothing I could have done. I got everything I possibly could have gotten out of my body and out of my career. Well, I think, Mark, that's why you're so widely respected in our field, because all you have as a broadcaster is your integrity and your credibility. And if you give that up, what are you really? So and you're, you're telling that your former teammates, coaches, whatever, this is all I have and this is what it's about. So I want to ask you this, though, because your trek to the NFL, you had to overcome a lot of obstacles, Alaska born. No Division One offers. You go to Idaho, drafted, you know, in the 10th round. You had to do a lot. What was that voice, that unstoppable voice in the back of your head? What, who did it come from? Was it from your father? Who was it? When you, when you heard that voice to keep you driving, where did it emanate? Yeah, I, I, I think probably more than anything, it's, it's been my father. He is – he – my father is such an incredible – he's an incredible man, but an incredible, incredibly hard worker. and. You know, he just always had, he always had this voice of wisdom. He was very serious um, about everything, you know, and I go back to, I go back to the first year I asked, I wanted to play football and I was in the seventh grade and I loved, I just loved it. And I was athletically gifted and, um, and I, I just wanted to play, but I was afraid to ask him because, you know, we, I worked like a, I mean, I worked like an indentured servant as a kid, like just, that's all we did was work. And, um, and so I was a, a, a bit afraid to ask him to play because it was going to mean this, the last half of summer, I was going to be at practice all the time. And then I couldn't, you know, games on the weekends and stuff. And I wasn't going to be able to help him around the house like normally I did. So there was a, a bit of apprehension about asking him to play. And so I did what every kid does. I asked my mother and she did what every mother does. She said, go ask your father. And, and I remember my dad was working. We had a, a horses and we had a barn. My dad was out in the barn. And it was raining. I remember it like it was yesterday. And so I sheepishly go out to the barn to ask my father if I could play. And I go, really, my friends are doing this, and I really want to do it, Dad. You know, do you mind if I play football and blah, 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 right? And so my dad does what, you know, every dad does. He takes, you know, his, his time kind of rubbing his chin, you know, the pregnant pause, you know, like he's really mulling it over. And he says to me, he goes, okay, here's the deal. You can play, but – two things you have to give me. You have to give me great effort. Regardless of what they ask you to do, you have to give your best effort and you can't quit. Because once you start, you can't quit. And I'm like, that's easy, right? You're 12 years old or whatever you are in the seventh grade. So, oh yeah, that's easy. So I'm going to play football. So we go out the first couple of days of practice without pads and stuff. And I'm the fastest kid on the team. I can throw the ball better than anybody else. I'm also one of the tallest kids on the team. And they make me the quarterback. And I have these illusions of grandeur. You know, I'm going to be the next Terry Bradshaw. That was the team, you know, Pittsburgh Steelers that I rooted for. And I thought I was going to be great. And so we get through all this stuff. And it comes down to time to, to pick offensive linemen. And we literally cannot snap the ball. Like, we can't even start a play, right? Because nobody wants to do it. Everybody's just kind of half-assing it, you know. And it's awful. And finally, the coach goes, hey, uh, Mark, would you get down and snap it to the backup kid? was a friend of mine named Tim Stanley. He goes, can you, you and, and his coach was Binky Stanley, his older brother. He goes, can you get down and snap it to Timmy? And I'm like, remembering what my father said, you know, you got to do your best regardless of what they ask you to do. Sure. So I get down over the ball and snap it to Tim Stanley, like perfect, works perfectly, right? We do it again. 
And within three snaps, I went from the starting quarterback of that team to the starting center of that team. <laughs> and I'll never forget the drive home. My mom picks me up. We had this old green Chevy. And my mom picks me up, and I get in the car, and I burst out into tears. And it's not fair, and I don't want to play anymore, and this is, you know, garbage, blah, blah, blah. And I cry all the way home. And, you know, I'm crying like the big snot bubble type of tears, right? And so I sit in my room for the rest of the evening. You know, the tears dry up, and my father finally comes home from work. And he always kind of came home a little bit later. And he pulls in. I hear the garage door open and instantly start crying. And so I can hear him and my mom talking, and then I can hear him walking down the hall. Then it really starts to, the waterworks just go, you know, it's not just flying out of my nose. And, and um, my dad said, hey, I'm really proud that, you know, you gave your best effort. I'm sorry that, you know, you're disappointed about having to move positions, um, but I'm really proud of, you, of your effort. And I said, well, I don't want to play anymore. I'm going to quit. And he goes, no, 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 no. You made a deal with me. You're finishing this out, and you're going to give great effort. And, um, you know, interestingly enough, I went from, you know, the starting quarterback to the starting center. And then I went to high school and I was an all-state center. And then I got a scholarship to play center at the University of Idaho. And I got drafted as a center to the, to the, to the Washington Football Club. And, um, and ultimately, it, it's what led to my career is playing offensive line. And, um, you know, now that I look at uh, myself throwing a, a baseball with my son to this day, I'm like, well, I probably didn't have the arm talent to actually play quarterback. <laughs> so, anyhow, that's kind of how – that was kind of the, the, the start of the journey, but that's really where I got the, the voice in my head to regardless of what the situation is. Uh, my dad used to say to me all the time when I was a kid, luck has a smell of perspiration. He goes, just do the work, man. Just do the work. And so I've um, – I've always had that about me, about doing the work. Hey, last thing for me. Uh, you've had some incredible care throughout your career and post-career from uh, Dr. Martin Boblik, an orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. How did he help you get through those years in the NFL and post-NFL with those surgically repaired knees that you have? Right. Well, first off, uh, he, uh, he listened to Mike Shanahan and passed me on my physical. So <laughs> when I got here in 1995 <laughs> – I had uh, I had failed the physical in Chicago. I failed the physical in Indianapolis. I failed the physical in Atlanta. So, like, I was like officer and a gentleman. I was like officer Mayo. I had nowhere else to go, and um, and I wouldn't have passed the physical here either. But Mike Shanahan told the doctors, Martin Bobick and those guys, that I was going to pass the physical. Um, you might want to ask him about that, but at least that was the story I got. And so they passed me on the physical, and. Um, and the rest is history. You know, they did a great job of managing me. And I owe Martin a debt of gratitude so much so. And I believe so much in Martin and guys like Stephen Hawkins at that time, Ted Schlegel, um, you know, Hawk and, uh, and Dr. Steady, Stedman, that uh, they did such a great job of managing me. I trusted them so much that when my son in high school tours on the collateral pitching, uh, that's where I took them to get fixed. That's how much faith I had in those guys. I, I, I knew what great surgeons they were. I knew what great people they were and how much they actually cared. So they just did a phenomenal job for me. We've stayed connected. I mean, Martin and I are still uh, friends, and um, we've just stayed connected over the years. And um, they do. They care. You know, they, they want to give you the best possible treatment. And, um, and they were just awesome to me. So, you know, managing my health with Mike Shanahan and with the rest of the guys um, that's, that's what they did. And they were always very careful about how much work I got in. Like they, they did a great job that way. Mike Shannon, most of all, because he just, he just allowed me 
to get the reps that I needed to get, but but to not have to practice all that much. Same with Alex Gibbs. So they, they worked as a team. Steve Anilopoulos, I would have of gratitude, Martin Boblick, Mike Shannon, and Alex Gibbs of coming up, putting a plan together to keep me healthy. And, and let me just tell you, my knee was a wreck when I came here. Um, the doctor from Atlanta told me, and I quote, you have the knees of an 80-year-old woman, and I don't believe that you play in the NFL. You probably can't say that anymore. That's probably politically incorrect to, to bag on an 80-year-old lady's knees. But that's what he, that was a direct line that he used on my knee. And I said, well, I line up every Sunday and whip ass, so I don't know what you're looking at. Well, we're, we're going to actually talk to Dr. Boblik in, in just a few minutes about your situation. Vic, you got another one? I, I got one last one. Les described you as a renaissance man. When I think Mark Schlereth, I think of a man – uh, and excuse me when I say this, a man who peed himself being a prostate cancer survivor, and I've peed myself several times. Can we get to the core of the matter? How did uh, – is that just yarn that's been spun, or is that really why they call you stink? Well, it's not – it's it's yarn, but it's it's true. So okay. the nickname stink actually came from when I was a rookie with the Washington Football Club. My sister was teaching at an Eskimo village – in Akiachuk, Alaska, nestled lovingly on the Kuskokoim River. And she said the very first run of salmon, the native people that would live there would dig a big pit. They would catch the salmon. They would dip net the salmon. So they'd bring out thousands of salmon. They'd cut the heads off, and they'd throw all the heads in this pit. They'd cover, bury the heads, let them ferment for weeks, and then they would dig them up and eat these rotten fermented fish heads. And they called them stink heads. And so that's how I got the name. That's, that became my name, Stinkhead. And then in 1990, we're playing our third preseason game in Washington uh, against the Cleveland Browns. And so it's a, a third preseason game. I'm the youngest of the Hogs, right? I'm the youngest starter. So I am also not only am I playing three, pre, you know, three quarters, which we used to do back in the day, right? And pre, we used to actually play in the preseason. So I play the full three quarters. And, um, and I'm the first guy up off the bench if somebody gets hurt. So I'm, you know, fully padded. And I'm sitting on the sideline with the rest of the guys like Bostic and like Riley McKenzie and Joe Jacoby and Russ Grimm. And I have got to urinate. And I'm like, that's it. I'm just going to let go. <laughs> and they're like, no, nah, don't do that. Yeah, I mean, we got a quarter left. I go, dude, I'm, I'm about to bust. I've, I've drank so much water. <laughs> and so I just sitting on the bench and I completely empty my bladder to the point where it's draining out of my pants off the bench, you know. And I'm like, they're all up. They're like, you're disgusting. And I'm laughing. I think it's funny. And literally, I mean, I just get done shaking it off on the bench. And, um, and they call my, they go like, hey, you're up. It stink. You know, we need you. So I pop up and I run to the sideline and I am sloshing wet. I mean, I'm full urine, full bladder release. And Stan Humphreys is the backup quarterback. He goes, let me get a practice snap with you. And I'm all right. So like the quarterback never, like, it's like foreplay. Like, they, they, they put your hand on your lower back. They put one hand on your butt cheek. They don't actually get under there, right? They just kind of let you know that, hey, I'm here. I'm here. And so they start calling out the case, blue 80, blue 80, blue 80. And right at the last second, they stick their hands in there. Shut up. I snapped the ball, and it just, I mean, splashes. He's like, oh, my God, I got something in my eye. Oh, my goodness. And he thought it was all sweat, right? And everybody's laughing because he thinks I'm just really sweaty. I'm not a super sweaty guy. It was just straight urine. So... <laughs> Stan Humphreys just got a lap full or a, a face full of urine and a handful of urine. And so from that point forward, it got shortened from stinkhead down to stink. And it, it, it stuck for the rest of my career and to, the, and to this day. Mark, really appreciate your time. Always a pleasure talking to you. 
and uh, we'll see you down the road, okay? Absolutely, guys. Always great catching up. Love you both. Thanks, Tink. Appreciate it, buddy. Time to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk with Dr. Martin Boblick, one of the men responsible for keeping Mark Schlereth on the field through all those knee injuries. We Are Unstoppable is sponsored by University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus, a world-class medical destination at the forefront of education, science, medicine, and healthcare, right in the center of the Rocky Mountain region. We're with Dr. Martin Boblick. He is the Assistant Professor of Orthopedics at the University of Colorado School of Medicine at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. He is also the co-founder of the world-renowned Stedman Hawkins Clinic, and he is the current head team physician for the NFL's Denver Broncos. Hello, Dr. Boblick. Hello, Les. So you've heard we spoke with Mark Schlereth, former NFL player earlier, and, and he described what it took to play in the NFL despite the fact he went through 20-plus knee surgeries in his 12 years as a player and the pain he had to play with. He credited you very much and and some other docs with helping him throughout his career. So tell me, if you will, your point of view as the head team physician for the Broncos, what it was like caring for somebody with the knees of Mark Schlereth. Well, first of all, let me thank you for the kind words from both you and Mark, because you guys are both very kind and Um, It's very much appreciated. You know, as far as caring for Mark, uh, that was really probably for the first six or seven years of our involvement with the football team, which started in 1994. And Mark was was an absolute pleasure to take care of. I mean, he was a hardworking, tenacious, uh, great leader, great, I think, teammate in the locker room, and and just as a pleasure uh, to have someone as a patient. Well, 20-plus knee injuries, though, is that an extraordinary number, even for a guy who's played 12 years in the NFL plus college ball? Or is that just the way it goes in the NFL? Is that the usual? Well, I think Mark is very much at the extreme. I think there are probably very few players who would have 20 knee operations and and still be playing football. Well, football, like so many other sports now, is a year-round project, a year-round proposition. Um, So athletes aren't giving their bodies the rest. Maybe athletes, pro athletes from from 20, 30, 40 years ago gave their bodies. Are athletes today harder on themselves with these increased training regimens? Do you see more injury because sports is now a year-round proposition? I think a lot of it has to do that players are bigger, they're faster, they're hitting harder. And you're right. I think they probably do train more year-round than they might have uh, uh, a generation or two ago. Dr. Boblik, Mark Schlereth was kidding that when he came to the Broncos, Mike Shanahan told the medical staff, before you do anything, make sure he passes his physical. I don't mean to throw you under the bus here, but would Mark have passed if you weren't told to pass him on his physical? Yeah, Mark would have would have passed his physical. Oh, that's good um, to hear. <laughs> you know, passing a physical... When you pass or fail someone on a physical, it's a little bit of a gray area, isn't it? So someone can have very arthritic knees, and if you look at the x-ray, they look terrible. But then you look at the patient as an athlete, and he's doing incredible things on the field. So your job as the physician evaluating that player is to educate the team on, hey, this player has some bad knees as they look by x-ray, and they may ultimately limit him and ultimately may shorten his career, but they're not dangerous for him to play with them. 
So for example, if someone comes in with a, with a bad fracture or with a bad neck injury where they're in danger of hurting themselves by playing, then you'd fail them. But if someone has arthritic knees and is performing very well, then you just let the team know that they may catch up with them in the future, but obviously marked it extremely well. Yeah, and one thing you can't measure, or a couple of things you can't measure, is heart and intestinal fortitude. And Mark evidently had plenty of that, right? He had as much of that as anybody I've ever met, and still does. How have things advanced? How would you treat Mark now differently from maybe 20, 25 years ago when he was playing in the NFL and you were working on him as an orthopedic surgeon? So I think when Mark came to us, he already had fairly beaten up knees. And I know he's shared this with you and he's comfortable with me sharing it. He came to us and I think maybe he even failed one or two physicals before he got to us. And uh, we knew he had some degenerative knees. And, you know, at the time, I think the things you could do, obviously, the typical um, conservative things, rest, ice, anti-inflammatories, treatments with the uh, training staff, Steve Antonopoulos and his people. And, um, you know, the things we could offer from an injection standpoint at that time was largely cortisone, which is a good anti-inflammatory, but it's, it's a short-term relief and it really doesn't have any positive long-term effects. If anything, it, it, it can be harmful in the long-term with multiple injections. And then obviously you can help a player like him with arthroscopies to clean up his knee. But at the time, some of the modalities that we have today were not available. So, for example, if someone has arthritic knees today, um, we do have some other modalities such as hyaluronic acid, which is a shock absorber lubricant. Um, it can be done as a series of one, three, or even five injections, and it, it is the natural component of cartilage, and it can provide shock absorption and lubrication. So that's one modality we have. Um, and I think that was probably just beginning to be used as Mark was at the very tail end of his career. And then even more recently now, we have a PRP or platelet-rich plasma, which, as I'm sure you're familiar, involves taking blood, spinning it down, isolating the platelets, and then basically activating the platelets or rupturing them to release growth factors into the knee and promote an anti-inflammatory and potentially healing environment. And then finally, the other things that we have and even more recently are, are, are so-called stem cells, which is probably a bit of a misnomer. But we have a bone marrow aspirin concentrate where you take uh, blood and marrow elements from a patient's typically the iliac crest and spin it down in a way similar to you would spin down PRP and inject that into the knee or potentially uh, fat-derived stem cells can be done similarly. So we do have other modalities and injections that we can use that we didn't have back then. Yeah, let's talk about some other breakthroughs as well. Mark is convinced he's going to need a new knee. Um, my guess is you would agree with that. So what are the what are the breakthroughs that we've seen in knee replacement just in the last few years? And, and are you using things such as 3D printing? So I personally don't do knee replacements, in a, but I, I do think that the designs and the techniques have gotten somewhat better. You know, do, do I think Mark will need a knee replacement? I think he probably will need two. But as you're well aware... The need for a knee replacement really isn't based on what your x-rays look like. It's really based on how much you're struggling. And Mark, despite having knees that if you looked at the x-ray, you'd say, well, when is he having his total knee replacement, performed in the NFL at the highest level with those knees and still has those knees. 
I mentioned at the top that you're also a professor of orthopedics at the CU Colorado School of Medicine. So tell me what you're doing, what, what you're teaching in orthopedics these days. Are, are there new approaches to, say, um, preventing and then treating bone injuries, not just to pro athletes, but for anyone? So I'm not sure a whole lot has changed in the way we treat bony injuries. You know, a bony injury is a whole gamut, anywhere from a bone bruise, which requires just rest and avoidance of impact activities and you take time to heal, to displaced fractures that require surgery, uh, obviously subsequent healing and a much longer recovery process. Okay. Um, for those of us who are active, and, and that's so many of us uh, in America these days, especially now that many of us are home and we have to figure out ways to exercise. So we're walking, we're running, we're hiking, whatever we can do to get that exercise in, especially with, with gyms closed. What would you tell those people or what would you tell anybody about what not to do so people can avoid seeing you? What's the best way to save our knees and our joints? What's the best care we can give them on our own? So I think it starts a little bit with kind of the background level of conditioning and fitness that you come into any activity. So if someone is, you know, in fairly good shape and and they gradually increase their activity, whatever that activity is, whether it's running, whether it's swimming, whether it's biking, um, you want to make sure that you do it in a gradual, thoughtful way so you don't go from zero to 60 in a week and end up with overuse injuries. Obviously, if someone is a little bit older, maybe a bit deconditioned, maybe have some medical issues and probably see your internist or medical doctor first, make sure you're okay for active exercise because obviously exercise is very good for you. And then similarly, approach it gradually. Are there preventative things you can do before you go out to work out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you want to be ideally well-rested. You want to be hydrated. Uh, you want to warm up a little bit. You want to maybe do some gentle stretching exercises, get your heart rate up, and then engage in the activity that you're going to do. And at the end, what would you do when you're done working out? So I think you want to cool down slowly. Uh, I think if you're someone who has a, a sore knee or a sore shoulder, whatever the activity may be, ice it afterwards. And if, if, if need be, you could take some anti-inflammatories. But obviously, if you have symptoms that persist, that's when it might be time to visit one of us. Last question for you, Dr. Boblik. As I mentioned, you are uh, one of the co-founders of the Sedman Hawkins Clinic, a world-renowned clinic. Some of the most famous athletes in the world have come to see you and your colleagues at your various offices around the country. What made you and Dr. Stedman and Dr. Hawkins, what made you all unstoppable in your pursuit to help the athletes of today? Well, I think it started with Richard Stedman, and uh, his practice in Tahoe, where he truly revolutionized the care of knee injuries, primarily in skiing athletes, by starting rehabilitation early um, and getting them working uh, on their range of motion, their strength, instead of putting them in a cast as used to be, as it used to be prior to that. Um, he also revolutionized some of the care of what we provide for athletes in terms of cartilage injuries, and you know he's often credited to be the inventor of the microfracture technique, which has kept a lot of athletes going. So it was really with his beginnings in Tahoe, uh, and then he came to Vail, started the Stemmon Hawkins Clinic there. Richard Hawkins, who was a well-renowned academic shoulder surgeon, joined him. And, and really, they were a, a tremendous pair of mentors for both knee and shoulder injuries. And 
you know, my partner, Ted Schlegel, and I were lucky enough to train under them and subsequently opened the clinic down here in 1993, trying to bring some of the same world-class care that they designed uh, down to the Denver market. Dr. Boblik, um, I've known for years and years you do wonderful work. Appreciate all you've done, and uh, thank you very much for the interview. Les, thanks very much. Thanks for listening to We Are Unstoppable, sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. You want more Unstoppable Stories? Subscribe to our podcast wherever you find and listen to podcasts. You can even ask your smart speaker to play We Are Unstoppable Podcasts. And you can visit us at our website, unstoppablepodcasts.com, for more episodes and ways to subscribe. That's unstoppablepodcasts.com. Subscribe today. 